Uh, let's pray one more time, ask the Lord to bless our time together. <coughs> Father, Lord, we thank you so much that we can come and bring our praises to you. What a wonderful and glorious hymn that is, Lord, to, uh, to think about you as almighty and that you are, uh, that you are disposed uh, to bless your people and that you care enough for us, Lord, that you would want to bless us with your word, with your spirit, that you would want to give us the means of grace and that you would want to be the lifter of our heads today. Father, we ask that you would encourage us, Lord, and strengthen us as we look at the profundity of your word, as we look truly and, and peer into these mysteries that were hidden in ages past but now have been revealed to us. Uh, we stand at a glorious point of history, this side of the cross, Lord, where we can look back and look upon your majesty and look upon the, the glorious uh, wonders of your gospel truth. And so, Father, we pray, help us, Lord, to understand the person of the Spirit better. Help us to uh, have uh, proper categories in our, in our mind regarding his person and his work. Bless us, Lord, that we study your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good deal. So you see the scripture on the board, and that is where we are now. Um, and uh, this is what we have uh, called, um, this will be the second one, but what I have called the angelic uh, theophany, which is just a, a manifestation of the divine, a manifestation of God's power, a manifestation of God's word supernaturally brought to the people of God, and so throughout the Old Testament, you have all sorts of instances in which the angels bring the Word of God, and so now we're asking uh, if the first angelic theophany uh, had to do with the forerunner, which was Christ, and we saw that. We saw how that in the announcing of John the Baptist, that what was going on there is that the Spirit was indicating literally that one was coming in the mantleship of Elijah, and so the, the prophecy that was given there out of Isaiah uh, in terms of God turning the hearts of the fathers back to their children and how that was rooted in the eschatology of the Old Testament. And ultimately, guys, what's going on is that the Spirit is at work in the life and in the birth and in the conception of Christ to the degree that the Spirit is helping Jesus uh, uh, build uh, the temple. And um, I'll get there in a second, but I'm just going to write down our vocabulary terms, things that, terms that, and ideas that you really need to get familiar with. But he's helping him build the temple. He is helping him bring the kingdom uh, of God. And uh, let me let me just give you just a, a, a just to remind you uh, there. If you look at Zechariah chapter, uh, uh, let's see here, Zechariah chapter six, for example. Uh, now, you guys all know that the reference in Scripture to the branch is a reference to who? Christ. Yeah, it's a reference to Christ. It's a reference to the Messiah. You know, in the Revelation, <clears throat> Revelation chapter 22, it says that, you know, he is the root or the branch of David. And so all the way in the end of Revelation, we still are having references to the branch that were introduced by Isaiah and others uh, to signify that Jesus is the Christ. He is the ultimate descendant of David, okay? And what is the ultimate descendant of David supposed to do? Well, look at Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, or I could just read it to you. It says, Then uh, say to him, this is, uh, like, uh, this is like the angel uh, uh, telling uh, Zechariah to speak these, these prophecies, these words. says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, Kind of an interesting concept, right? And what will he do? He will build the temple of the Lord. And so what is that referring to? Well, some would say, well, that's referring to Zerubbabel, how Zerubbabel uh, rebuilt the temple in a post-exilic period after Babylon and things like that. Well, those are partial fulfillments maybe, right, of what God was ultimately doing. But there is no question that this is a messianic passage and it was looked upon messianically. So one thing is for certain, the announcing of uh, these end-time prophecies, you know, first through the forerunner, and now, as we're going to see in the second theophany, uh, in this passage here, where no longer is the prophecy 
dealing with simply the forerunner of Christ, but now we're talking about actually bringing Christ into the world. But see, big picture, guys, is that the, the work that the Spirit is doing is he is, uh, He's doing this. He's bringing about the end-time temple of God. Now, we can debate what that is. He is bringing about the end-time kingdom of God or ultimate manifestation of the kingdom. That's why even John the Baptist, when he came, he came preaching the kingdom of heaven, right? And so that is, uh, 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 you know, that's what the Spirit is doing. Any questions about that? Any, anything, anything at all? No dumb questions either. I can't believe I still have people telling me I was going to ask something, but I was kind of afraid to. And you guys don't need to be like that. We're family, right? Everyone's comfortable. And yes, finally, Russell. Thank you. I didn't pay you, right? No. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and so, um, I never get out of there. Just to, yeah, just to like uh, how it applies, like the title, the you know Christ and the Spirit. Uh-huh. Um, how exactly that's tying together? Because I'm, I'm picturing like how the Spirit is working in Christ's um, you know life and ministry. Yes. And we're just talking about biblical theology so far. Yeah. I'm not connecting the dots. Yeah, because we're not there yet. Okay. So I have a whole uh, section where we're going to get into how the Spirit. Uh, operate upon Christ and the temptation and during his miracles all the way up to his ascension right and uh, and his work of outpouring so we're laying like these are kind of deep structures that we're laying down here you know what I'm saying to show how that if the whole Bible really is moving towards this right uh, and I you know that the end time temple of God is you know ultimately indicative here like in Zechariah is talking about the church and that's really what uh, he's talking about. Uh, the church, uh, you know, First Peter chapter, uh, what is it, uh, chapter 2, you know, where it says there in verses 2 and 3, right, that, uh, that, that we are living stones in God's temple, right? So it's like, you know, the temple theology, according to the apostles, extended beyond a literal physical architectural structure like the one that we saw in Israel, whoever went to Israel, right? It's no longer talking about these massive stones that were set there <laughs> through, you know, slavery and, and, and arduous, torturous work, right? It's no longer talking about another rebuilt edifice. Now it's talking about a spiritual organism, right? The temple of the Lord is ultimately conceived of as the church. That's one theme of the temple. Uh, there's so many temple themes in the Bible uh, because the temple... Um, you know, has all these applications in Scripture. Uh, Jesus basically said he was the temple. Uh, Jesus, you know, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 17, uh, there the Apostle Paul says the temple is the church, uh, and that if you destroy the temple, God will destroy you. And there the temple's, uh, the church is, has to be the church because he's using plural pronouns. So when he's saying you are the temple, he's not... He's not talking about, you know, the believer being the temple yet, but the church is the temple. And at the same time, also the believer himself is also called the temple, right? You are the temple and the Holy Spirit dwells in you and, and those kinds of things. And, you know, I've heard every application under the sun for, you know, your, your body's a temple, man. You know, that's, don't, don't eat too many cheeseburgers, you know, because you're the temple. Take care of the temple. It's like, that's not what it's about. You know what I mean? First of all, he's cleaned all food, so thank Thank you, Lord, for that. We can eat bacon as the temple of God. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's radical. I mean, think about it. But, uh, but, but, but ultimately, these are eschatological ideas that are coming together. And what I'm trying to show is that really the Spirit is the architect that is bringing all of this. Uh, how do you spell architect? That's something like that. Architect, right? It's, he's the designer behind it, fashioning uh, you know, like I believe the Spirit, the Holy Spirit fashioned the body of Jesus in the womb of, of Mary. You know, where it says in, what is it, Psalm, is it Psalm 8? A body you have prepared for me. And then that's quoted again in Hebrews, I think it's chapter 2. But, uh, you know, that, that, all of that to me signifies that the Spirit is moving over the waters. And so, just like in Genesis 1-2, where the Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep and over the chaos of, of the, prime, uh, the primal you know, uh, cosmic order before it was brought into good order, right? so too the Spirit is hovering over the life of Christ, over the very womb of Christ, right? and He is uh, 
uh, protecting him and guiding him. We're going to look at all of that stuff, but right now I think we miss the theology. For example, and I have an application in here about Mary, that Mary uh, uh, you know, is chosen by God to bring in the Messiah, and yet when we read a lot for this, this is what she's chosen for. Uh, and yet, when we meet a lot of the literature on Mary, so like, you know, you have books like 12 Extraordinary Women or something like I'm just, I don't even, I haven't read that section, of, you know, in MacArthur and Mary, but, but books like that and other books that sort of tend to, you know, capitalize on individuals in the Bible. And then what ends up happening is you create a devotional biography of that person, right? And so what ends up happening is that the Spirit coming upon Mary and the angel visiting Mary and all of that ends up becoming so personalized in the life of Mary that this angelic theophany, what's the purpose of it? Well, it's to help, you know, a lowly little virgin in her trials and her distress and to encourage her and to lift up her head. Well, that might have been a byproduct of what happened, but that is not the reason (laughs) that she is receiving the angelic theophany. That is not why the spirit is going to brood over her womb, right? It's much bigger than that. It's this. And let me tell you, I believe Mary understood this. I believe Mary understood that. That's probably why she didn't write an autobiography after this happened to her. It's because she knew like she was just a small piece in a much, much bigger purpose. And ultimately, it's the purpose of God. And so uh, I just wanted to make a couple observations based on this text right here, you guys. Okay, so just follow along because I think there's three things I want to point out. Number one, that the Spirit is coming for the purpose, uh, number one, to perpetuate the messianic line of David. Number two, to bestow God's covenant favor. And number three, to execute uh, the sovereign decree of bringing the Savior King into the world. And so the very first one is uh, verse 27. I guess we can go there. But this is the messianic line. Okay. Uh, And uh, why do I say that? Well, because we have this this reference here to the house of David. Okay. Actually, what does your Bible say there in verse 27? Uh, uh, Verse 27, yeah. Yeah, descendants. What does your footnote say? (laughs) Yeah, that's right, because it's the Greek word oikos. That's uh, that's Greek, actually, and you can almost read it in English. Right? <laughs> this is why Greek is easier than Hebrew. You have at least something to work with, you know, but uh, in, I'm trying to think, how would you write oikos in Hebrew? I don't know, but uh, <clears throat> thankfully I don't have to write it. But uh, you see what I'm saying is that, um, uh, you know, it's using house in a, this metaphorical kind of way, and so house is the same thing as descendants, and you know, so that's why they translate it like that to try to get you to understand what it means by the house of David, it, speaking of his descendants. And so right there and then, what we're saying is that the Spirit is coming to Mary uh, in order to perpetuate this messianic line. And so it says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now remember I told you guys before, angels being sent by God... A lot of times what they do is they're, they're sort of uh, sent on, on mission. They're just, just kind of like uh, they're commissioned to go out and to do things. You see what I'm saying? Uh, let, me just give you one, let me just give you one example of that. You don't have to go anywhere. I'll do, I'll do all the heavy lifting for you. Uh, this is Zechariah chapter 1. I was, just re- I was just reading this the other day, and I was reminded of this. But uh, like this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 11. So they answered the angel of the Lord. Uh, the angel of the Lord is the angel that was standing within the myrtle trees overlooking the face of the deep, which I think was a, uh, a Christophany, if you want to uh, call it that. And then, uh, because he's, he's that, he's that uh, rider on the horse and he kind of leads and commands the other riders. But anyway, so this angel of the Lord was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. That's a bad thing, not a good thing. All the earth was peaceful and quiet. That was not good because uh, the implication is, is how can everybody be at peace and quiet when everyone is in sin? <laughs> Basically, the nation is totally apostate and everyone's just cozying up in their little lives. And that's not a good thing. And so God issues forth judgment. You know what I'm saying? You think that's a good thing. That's not a good thing. So that's what I'm saying is that God sends out these angels like to patrol the earth. In other words, they're on this sort of covenant mission 
sent by God. And so that's what's going on here is that these angels are divinely tasked by God to go and perform uh, these tasks. And what is at the root of it all, brothers and sisters, is this eschatology, of course. Now, we're, we're thinking a very, very uh, biblical theology. That's kind of where we're at. But if you think of covenant theology, what covenant are we referring to? The covenant of redemption. Why? What was conceived in the covenant of redemption? Oh, redemption, right? So the work of redemption happened uh, uh, in eternity, uh, in eternity past, if you want to use that language, uh, among the the members of the Trinity uh, in order to agree upon the means and the objects of redemption. So not just the objects of redemption, who's going to be saved, but the means of redemption, how are you going to save them, right? And each member of the Godhead agreed to his uh, own uh, role in that work of redemption, which is really fascinating. I believe that's where the language of Jesus comes from. Uh, John chapter 17, verse, what is it, 4 and 5, where it says, you know, I have done the work that you have given me to do. You know what I mean? Uh, so, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of what they do, the way they operate, different tasks that they take upon themselves. You know what I'm saying? So what I'm saying is that all of this issues forth out of this. If you want to switch gears from biblical theology to covenant theology, covenant theology gives birth to the kingdom of God in heaven. Right. And the kingdom of God in heaven has and always has been and always will be the purpose of it all. Brothers and sisters, everything has always been moving towards the kingdom of God in heaven. Everything. And uh, that's what's uh, that's what's at foot in uh, 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 in the Old Testament as God is moving the uh, the the promise forward. You see, any questions about that at all? Any questions about that? Um, okay, so <clears throat> I said messianic line because we're back to the house of David, and that brings us directly in contact with the whole storyline of Scripture. And um, remember, where, the, where did the Messianic line begin? Anyone? Where did it begin? Not with David, meaning before David, where did it begin? What is it? Is it is, did it begin with Abraham? <laughs> I mean, you guys know me by now. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In one sense, I'm very thankful for this because... It's not just because I keep writing the same scripture up on the board, uh, but because it's so easy and you all have no excuse, all right, to be expert biblical theologians. You know, it all goes back to the covenant of grace that was promised right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there would be, what? A seed. And so what we need is a good seedology. Chris Best, don't get any ideas of creating any websites, okay? But the seedology of the Bible is really what we're supposed to be tracing. We're supposed to be following that seed. You know, he gave that little promise and we're supposed to see, you know, there it goes, you know, like uh, Eve, uh, Eve thinks the promise is fulfilled. Genesis chapter, uh, what is it? Just uh, verse four, uh, chapter four, verse one. And then you fast forward into chapter five and Lamech thinks it's fulfilled. And so Lamech becomes kind of another link in the, in the, in the process. He thinks, oh, this one will be born and he will reverse the curse. He says he will take away the curse from the earth. Right. So that promised seed, Lamech expected it, the father of Noah. But Noah was not the ultimate deliverer. He was a type of the ultimate deliverer. And what you find in Genesis is that everyone's expecting that seed to arrive. You know, they thought David was the seed. They thought he would bring the the kingdom that would deliver us from all our enemies and give us peace in the kingdom. And then we find out, no, David is just a type. Right. Of the true redemption that was supposed to come. And uh, uh, by the way, if we think about someone like Lamech, what he is, uh, what he's gunning for is for the reverse of the curse. Remember? And what does Revelation, uh, what is it, 22, verse 3? Revelation chapter 22, verse 3. Just to, just to, so it's just not crazy, Pastor Emilio, but the curse idea here uh, is something that also that is very important to keep your eye on in Scripture to understand how all this is going to unfold, mainly that this is all sort of eschatology, right? Everything is leading towards 
Like we don't reach the consummation of the temple kingdom of God until the curse is dealt with. And when the curse is dealt with, it's in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, which says there was, there was no longer any curse, right? Let's say uh, there will no longer be any curse, <laughs> right? Where does the idea of the curse come from? Genesis chapter 3, where man uh, fell. And so uh, uh, that, too, is uh, a work uh, of the Spirit. Uh, just to show you that quickly, go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Maybe shed new light on Romans chapter 8. And maybe even open your eyes a little bit to uh, what Romans is saying here. Romans chapter 8. Somebody want to read that for us? Verses 18 all the way to verse 25. Uh, Somebody want to read that nice and loud? Go ahead, brother, nice and loud. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Mm. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Mm. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if he, if, but if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Yeah, that's right. And so the futility there, the curse there is described as <coughs> Futility that that futility is only going to be overcome uh, through the redemption that is brought by uh, the consummation, right? When the created order goes back. But notice that language there, right? Like this is creation language. So uh, as the Spirit of God applies to your life and to my life salvifically, uh, we are supposed to conceive of that within the context of the cursed world in which we live. That the, the, the Spirit working in us takes us out of that. Uh, what does he call it there? Verse 18, the present time, right? That is the, that is the present evil age. That is the present fallen world. And uh, uh, how many times have we quoted this verse? For we know that God causes all things to work together for our good, right? For the good of those who love him. And so we, we quote that. Even in the midst of a trial, we'll be going through something hard. And like, all things work together, brother, right? Like, it's like, yeah, that's right. It gets us through the day. But we can't take that promise out of the situation in which Paul was talking. Which what he was talking about there is the way that God is going to work all things not just your traffic jam or being late to work or the crazy day you had with the kids. That's, that's not, that's not, okay, yeah, that's part of it. But all things means the cosmic order. He's going to cause, he's going to reverse the cosmic order, right? There's going to be this, this sort of uh, uh, you know, upheaval that takes us out of the present age. And what's going on right now is what we should expect. There are birth pains going on right now, labor pains. There's groaning. The creation itself is just groaning. Uh, I felt some of that groaning this week, you know, the announcement that New York made, you know, the passing of the new law, being able to abort your child all the way up to birth, you know what I mean? Uh, It literally sent me into a state of groaning, and uh, you can see that we are living in a world that is travailing with the pains of the curse, and that nothing is going to, you know, uh, uh, sort of reverse that curse uh, until the Spirit uh, does uh, exactly what He said He would do, and so... This is the substance of our hope that the Spirit, through the Spirit, Christ will end the present age and transform us back into His image, back into the glory of Christ. Uh, And that's what's really being announced uh, to Mary is that He will bring this messianic hope of the people of God. uh, And that is what He's doing through the, the the theophany of this angel. But go back to Luke because there's another phrase there. I'm going to actually get really deep into some of these concepts, but like uh, when we think about what's going on here, obviously the hope uh, that is rooted in the covenant with David uh, and the house of David is obviously the language of kingship, right? And so kingdom, kingship, and uh, of course we know who the king is. uh, So when he uh, announces this, 
this is what's going on. Now, look at verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So, you have a hermeneutical uh, issue going on here. Uh, sorry, but you do have a decision to make. You've come to a fork in the road in terms of your ability or just in terms of your uh, interpretation of Scripture. See, everyone's a theologian. They just don't know it. Uh, everybody, is a, everybody has a hermeneutic, uh, whether you like it or not. Some people's hermeneutics are good. Some people's are bad. Some people's are, you know, they're all right. Uh, uh, but uh, at this point, when it says he will give him the throne of David... Uh, how do you understand that? How, do, wh- how does that? How, how do you understand that? Well, obviously, if you take this from a Zionist perspective or a dispensationalist perspective, then what you what you're thinking is that he is actually going to be. Well, dispensa- uh, uh, a true classic dispensationalist would say that this is fulfilled only through a literal rebuilt temple, a literal a literal sitting upon the throne in a literal Jerusalem, in this literal world, in the literal uh, millennium to come. And so that's the only way that this can be actually fulfilled. And so what we're saying is that, no, the throne of David actually, if you remember our little chart, what is this? This is the archetype, right? And so uh, let's say here, here is the throne, okay? And then we have the historical uh, type, What's the historical type? Well, uh, the earthly throne, okay? Earth throne, okay? And then we'll come to the anti-type. This is the fulfillment, uh, anti-type. Then here we have the throne of David. So then we have to ask the question, the earthly type that this is referring to when it says, he will give him the throne of David. What is this all about, right? This earthly throne that was constructed by Solomon was patterned after the heavenly archetype, the heavenly reality, the heavenly temple, the heavenly throne of the Son of God, you see? So when David sat on the throne, don't you see what's going on here? When David sat on the throne on earth, he was, in a sense, he was a replica of the Son of God sitting in the throne of heaven, okay? That's, where, that's why David can be called God's son, it's not because Jesus is patterned after David, but because David was patterned after Jesus, you see? In his heavenly and eternal kingdom, the reality of that, okay? Not, obviously, in eternity that Jesus was incarnate and sitting on the throne yet. We're talking about what God has decreed, what God, the reality that, uh, that accords with the heavenly, or the supernal realm or the heavenly realm. Uh, And so, therefore, when Jesus is given the throne, what does this correspond to? This? No. This. There's the correspondence, you see? And so, I am one of those that does not expect Jesus to go back (laughs) to a literal Jerusalem, a literal uh, temple, a literal throne uh, in in the midst of a literal uh, uh, reconstituted nation of Israel. Uh, that's where I'm at. So, any questions about that? Come on, I know you're. Yeah. I probably don't know how to answer it. Very good. Yeah. Mm, that's good. Christ did it and got the approbation. That's why he's the archetype. Is that? Yeah. I, I guess to me the key word you asked there is meant. Uh, you, you see what I'm saying? Because when you say meant, yes, David, sh- I mean, uh, Adam should have passed probation, obeyed the commandment perfectly. He would have been granted eternal life and he would have ascended to a heavenly kingdom. Right. These are general ways of conceiving of that. But you use the word meant, which, uh, you know, I'm not an open theist. And so in Adam, there were not many possible worlds that were actually possible. Right. There is only. And this gets us to a systematic theology question. But there's only the decree of God. 
And so I believe, oh, ironically enough, what verse did we just read? What verse did we just read? Romans 8? Did you guys miss that? No, you, I doubt that you guys missed it. Romans 8, ironically enough, coming full circle, maybe the Lord does want your question answered. Because notice what it says, uh, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, I don't know about you guys, but in my Bible, him is capitalized, um, which would indicate that this is a, a divine action, right? So it's referring to God. So God subjected the world to futility in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the slavery to corruption and the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So in other words, the fall was ordained by God in order to bring about the glorious freedom of the children of God, which is uh, you know, a much vaster concept. That's kind of like, my mind is blown. You know, You can either get angry and mad and say, like, how does God ordain the fall but not be himself fallen, right? Which is just another way of saying how could God ordain that evil come to pass but he himself is not evil. And to that, uh, I don't know how you have answered that age-old question, uh, but I would just say that uh, you know, those are maybe questions we'll never know fully. You know, we can give answers like secondary causes, and God separates himself from the viciousness of the act, where he himself is not the direct agent through which evil comes. We, we get all of that. But at the end of the day, it almost doesn't remove the mystery. <laughs> You know what I mean? Just kind of kicks the can down the road a little bit more, right? So to me, I just say, I don't know. I put my hand over my mouth and my head in the dust, and I say, Lord God, you know, you alone are sovereign, and who am I but a worm, dust and ashes in your sight? You know, so I either gonna sit there and perseverate. You know, I have kids at UNT that have, you know, rejected God solely on the basis. Well, we know, but solely on the basis as they espouse uh, that God is sovereign, and they cannot accept a sovereign God that ordains. Uh, all things. And so right here in Romans, though, I don't think you have a way out. Uh, and so, yeah, I think in some way uh, Adam uh, fits in, you know, the, the typology, of course, you know, at least with Christ, you know what I mean? But, but it shows you, and that's a good point, that Adam failed. So is it any surprise that over the course of redemptive history, what you have is Adamic figures that rise up, Right? And so people will have made the case, Noah is a new Adam. Uh, Abraham becomes another Adamic figure. It all hinges upon him and his obedience to some extent. And then what happens is that Israel becomes a corporate Adam. Because, in, uh, where's, that, where's, that, where's that verse? Uh, Exodus uh, 4, verse t- uh, 19 and 20, where Israel is called the Son of God, right? Just even as Adam is. Uh, and then David, of course, is also the Son of God. And then Christ, who is the ultimate son of God, who is the last Adam, you know, maybe last there is in is supposed to mean like in a line of Adamic figures. Right. He is called the second Adam, but he's also called the last Adam. So uh, it's like everything was ultimately fulfilled in him. He was the right Adam. He got it done. And when he got it done through the obedience uh, of the son, then he ascends to the heavenly throne. Right. And that's what. uh, uh, yeah, that's what. The, and so, how can I be so confident of this? Because you guys, I've told you this before. You can put all sorts of themes in here, whether you're talking about the tabernacle, right? Uh, wasn't I going there? Uh, yeah, I'm going there someday. Um, but turn to Hebrews, just real quick. Uh, the book of Hebrews, right, gives us this exact stuff. See, most of uh, most evangelicals do this, make, commit this error right here. You go back, right? So Christ is inheriting what throne? He's inheriting that throne. You see, and in the process of committing this hermeneutical error, that's where you get into major problems. <laughs> that's when you get into really unresolvable problems, I believe, 
you know, uh, where, you know, uh, then you start debating about, well, you know, you can't call the church Israel, and Israel does not, uh, the church does not replace, I just had somebody tell me that this week, uh, you are a good friend of mine, says, you are replacing Israel with the church, and I said, well, even as you point that finger at me, that little beady finger of yours, you got three pointing back at you, because then why does Paul call Israel the church? Why does Peter call Israel the church? Uh, why does, uh, you know, the New Testament repeatedly call uh, Christians, Jews, you know? Why are we the true circumcision? Uh, why are we the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation? Why, 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 why? See, you know what I mean? They, they think they, you know, they get you on the literalism, right? Uh, they don't like it because you're, you're playing with it. It literally says Israel and, you know, that. And they don't understand that that literalism is exactly what's going to get you into trouble hermeneutically, you see? Uh, any questions? I mean, these are big, huge concepts, yeah, this was all happening when the angel appeared to Mary. <laughs> of course, because that's what he's announcing to her. He's telling her that the long-awaited David is here. The realization of all of Israel's hopes is finally arrived. And so in Scripture, you have all these uh, themes, like the tabernacle. When are we going to Hebrews? Uh, Hebrews, um, oh man, where was that at? Oh, yes, yes, uh, yes. Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 11, right? He says, but Christ, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come. So here we go, guys. Just just back and forth with me real quick. Okay, we're going to slow through the text just to show you this principle. So here we have it. Christ appeared, Right? And so the emergence of the antitype is here, okay? And what does he do? Does he go back to the earthly tabernacle? Of course not. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Watch this. Not made with hands, and to be crystal clear, that is to say, not of this creation. So then what tabernacle did he go into? This tabernacle. Right? The archetype of the earthly tabernacle. You know? Uh, where does. Uh, oh, it says it right here. Uh, chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. That's a big one here. What does that say? Somebody read that for me. Hebrews 8, 5. Yeah, Exodus 25, verse 40. So on the mountain, Sinai, God specifically told Moses, you must fashion it exactly like I'm showing you. This is not optional. Why? Because the reality of which you are about to be a replica, the reality that you're about to reflect has already been determined. This is immovable, unshakable. This is eternally fixed. You're talking about eternal order here. And so it must be fashioned exactly the way that I tell you, Moses. Why? Uh, because uh, uh, one is going to come who is going to fulfill that reality that it reflects. Yeah? I also don't really know how to ask this question, but as I've read this and other passages that speak about heavenly things and African supposition, mm. You're saying you're saying heaven will have no matter? No, no, no. I'm assuming that given oh. the throne in heaven. The oh, yes. Yes. Right. Okay. Furniture in the tabernacle, tabernacle in the temple. In heaven was mm-hmm. also not physical. So yeah. how should I read the manifestation of it on earth in light yeah. of the yeah. presence of it in heaven? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's almost like, is Jesus going to go into a literal tabernacle in heaven and like literally bring a a bowl or basin of his blood right no i don't think so i think it's just in the tribunal of god in the economy of god that when the the atonement happened it was offered not on the earthly uh, justice system on earth but in the heavenly 
justice system in heaven, the tribunal of heaven, right? And that, uh, we cannot conceive of that in, like you said, in physical ways, right? It's not like he actually, like I said, brought like a gallon of his blood or something into heaven and presented it there on a physical altar. So you see what I'm saying? That heavenly language that he held all these all spiritual. Supernal, yeah. Okay. That's right. It's a spirit dimension that we're, in, that we're involved with. Yeah. Correct. It's, it's of course. It's eternal, stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, uh huh. Yeah, I just read a theologian who put it almost exactly like that. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think you're right, John. There's a there's a there's a profound quote by Meredith Klein where he speaks about the the stuff of heaven, and he called that I forgot what he called it. Uh, he, something like the the no, he called it something like the he called it something like the the, the 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 spiritual stuff of heaven or something like that. Because we just don't know. We 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 don't have okay. We don't have the ability, like Paul says. You know, such things are unlawful to speak about. We cannot. Like I'm convinced as I read through the law. And all the dimensions, you know, everybody skips over the dimensions of the tabernacle and the temple and all that because they're boring, right? I'm convinced, man, that every peg, every nail, everything has some sort of heavenly correspondence. What it is, I don't know. So don't ask me. But I, I think everything has some sort of heavenly correspondence in heaven, right? And there's some... There is some basis to that. So, so there, I mean, you can see, you know, you can plop all these realities in here, whether it's the tabernacle, uh, what else? Uh, whether it's the priesthood, right? The priests, uh, all of that, whether it's the sacrifice, uh, all of these things. Uh, anything else? The temple, you know, all of these ideas. This is what's going on here again and again. When I, when I understood Voss, uh, this is by Voss, by the way, Hardest Voss in his little book on the Epistle of the Hebrews. When I read Voss and I understood this paradigm of uh, of uh, typology, it was like yes, a simple picture that helps me plug anything into here and it makes sense. So, uh, for example, what about this one? Uh, I, I don't have room. Uh, Melchizedek, uh, Melchizedek. You guys know uh, Melchizedek, right? Is almost like the perfect one to understand it. Because in the book of Hebrews, it says Melchizedek was fashioned after the Son of God. Not the other way around. Be careful how you read that text, right? It doesn't say the Son of God came in the manner of Melchizedek. It's the opposite. Where is that at? Chapter 7. Chapter 7. Is it? You guys are way ahead of me. Verse 3. He was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life. But Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. So it didn't say the Son of God was made like Melchizedek. It's the opposite. Genesis chapter 14, when Melchizedek arrives upon the scene, he already has a paradigm, and his paradigm follows this trajectory, not the other way around. Does that make sense, everybody? That makes sense, right? It's like, man, if you guys get, if you guys understand this, you guys are going to be astute theologians, and that's why I'm, uh, I'm so uh, exercised to have you guys understand this. So, what I'm saying is that in the announcement of, uh, of Mary with this comes the language of kingship, the house of David, and all that that entails. Uh, and and what happens here? Let, let's uh, let's get rid of all this confusing stuff. No, no. Well, this is not just because it's part of the line. I'm just showing you how the how typology works. Yeah, different themes that you can throw in there. How about this theme? The land. You know, the earthly land is patterned after the heavenly reality that we now know, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, that that's what they were looking for anyway was the heavenly land. So <laughs> the, the one who's builder and, and maker is God. <laughs> you know, that's what it was all about. And then they were given like a, a small plot of land on earth so that they can comprehend this inheritance. Okay, but when the inheritance comes, y'all, 
we are not all packing up and moving to Israel. <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you, we're not. We're moving to heaven. Uh, that's where we're going, you see? Uh, so, I mean, to me, man, this has been like tremendously helpful. I mean, uh, it is hard. It is difficult. It is, it is shifting gears from your dispensational uh, roots, you know what I mean, that sees everything like in this hyper-literal sort of linear fashion you know, that doesn't really appreciate or have a concept of typology, um, uh, that Christ is uh, kind of scattered throughout the Old Testament, but he's not all throughout the Old Testament. It's kind of like a handful of prophecies where Christ in the Old Testament is found, but, you know, it's kind of like just a few here and there. I say, no. Matter of fact, I was doing this exercise the other day. I was putting all the chapters of the book of Isaiah, and I was just going one by one, you know, which ones are about Christ? Well, chapter 2 is about Christ. You know, chapter 7, clearly Christ. Chapter 9 was Christ. Uh, chapter 11 is Christ. Chap- and I'm just going through it. And before I, I, had, I didn't have any lines left. I was like, the whole book of Isaiah is about Christ. <laughs> it's not a stretch. It's not an exaggeration. You know what I mean? And it's just, I dare, to, I dare to conceive of every chapter in the Bible. I could probably do that too. It's just knowing how to get there, you know? Uh, it's not like, well, the priest's robe had a red scarlet in it. They're red, red. The blood of Jesus is red. Therefore, that's probably what it meant. Yeah, that's the significance. No, no, that's not how it works. I understand that that's a temptation to think that this is some kind of allegorical approach. No, there are themes in Scripture that clearly connect us to the person and work of Christ. So in Isaiah 11, when it talks about anointing the king, that is talking about the messianic king, and therefore we have a warrant to see Christ there. Does that make sense? Uh, any other questions? Anybody? Okay, so like I said, I'm going to erase this confusing stuff. Uh, this is not working real well, so I'll just come over here. Okay, so we have the messianic line. Here's the other thing I wanted to point out. Covenant, because we're running out of time. Favor. Why do I say that? Go back to Luke. And please, if you have questions regarding all this, write it down, bring them to me later. So I, I need those questions. I rely on those questions. Yeah, what is it? Yeah, number two. Uh, yeah, this is number one, I guess. This is number two. Covenant favor. Why do I say that? Because look at what it says here, guys. It says, uh, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the descendants of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And, watch this, coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. You know, um, uh, as one commentator pointed out, this is not just a simple greeting. Uh, this is, uh, this is much more than a greeting. Uh, this is a, this is a formula in scripture. Um, yeah. Any, was anybody else in scripture greeted like this? Anybody? If you guys can think, just shout it out. Man, this is not working well. Look at this. Um, yeah, is anyone else in Scripture, do you remember, greeted in this way? And then I'm making a big deal of that phrase right there. The Lord is with you. Uh-huh. Maybe. I don't think you're, you're probably not wrong. That sounds about right. It's just that's not one I have on the list. <laughs> so uh, just feel free to give me some feedback on that if you think about it. But, uh, you know, this is what I, uh, this is what I would be saying here is that the purpose of the favor here was covenantal. The term favor is not found in every instance, the same, but, the, uh, but the same covenant interest is For example, in God's blessing in favor of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, Moses is also said to be favored by God, uh, and all of these people uh, are said to be favored by God. Consequently, the dictum here, I will be with you, okay, should cause us to remember people like Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Jeremiah, who were all told I am with you, or behold, I am with you. Not everybody in Scripture gets told that, but individuals, certain individuals, and what I started kind of discerning a pattern, 
was that certain individuals at certain very specific moments in redemptive history are visited by God, sometimes through the angel of the Lord, sometimes through a vision, sometimes through another angel. They're visited by God, and they are told, Behold, I am with you. Yeah, right? I think that would happen to you as well. You said that too. Yeah, that's moving forward. Yeah, it's ultim- that's right. And so in the same... So what's it showing? It's showing us that there is, you know, not only are we out of time... But it's showing us that there is this continuity that, that, that Mary represents a very important link in redemptive history between the prophets and patriarchs of the past and God's covenant interest organically continuing on with Mary and with people like her, like Elizabeth and, and Zacharias and, and the other faithful who fear God and love God and walk according to his commandments and walk uprightly and blameless before him. In other words, those who love God and love his son, right? Now, uh, everything is going to change because uh, uh, maybe I just got to do it harder. It doesn't work. I broke this, so it definitely wasn't. An issue of force. I think it's just the ink is drying up. I don't know. Wally, you got any theories? You're an engineer. (laughs) (laughs) H2O. Uh, Yeah, we're so out of time. But, um, yeah, it's kind of like a continuation, an organic continuation of redemptive history uh, through Mary and through everybody that she represents um and uh and also it's just like that covenant that covenantal uh oh this is what i was going to say this is what i was going to say is that if god is with people like mary then that means the loci or loci this is a fancy word that scholars use for what brian yeah sure center right like a center uh, a focus, an area of focus, right? The centrality, in other words, it's like what is central? What is the central theme? What is the driving main focus here? And what I'm saying is that in Scripture, the loci of Scripture has changed. Now everything is Christ. So everything has been, in a sense, reoriented, and everything will be reoriented around Christ, right? Like this is a disruption, Uh when God favors this woman and says, I am with you, that means God's interest is focused on this, this girl and her son and what's going on here. And so now everything in redemptive history gets rearranged around him, right? So everything, the worship uh, of the people of God, uh, the temple, uh, everything, the nation, uh, the covenant. Uh, can you guys think of other stuff? Everything gets reoriented around Christ. He becomes the land. Everything. Everything. The Sabbath. Everything gets reoriented around the intercovenant interests of God that he now expresses in Mary and people like her. We're so out of time. Love you guys. Man, I'm really encouraged by you guys coming. Thank you for your questions.